lads, and welcome to the Sunflower Socialist Podcast. And boy, oh boy, it has been a very long time since I've done any episodes, but I think I've finally gotten myself in a place where I can make it work. I want to try and do a few more podcasts over the next few months, but we shall see how it goes. A lot has happened since I've recorded back in September, but we got to talk about the big news item that's on everyone's mind, and that's the current situation in Ukraine. On February 25th, After months of escalating tensions, the Russian military launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I don't want to rehash all the events that have happened and led up to that, so I'm just going to get right into my thoughts on this. I think it goes without saying that as an anti-militarist and an anti-imperialist, I am vehemently opposed to what Russia has done. Full stop. This is an unjustified, unprovoked, illegal war of aggression, and it is totally immoral by every standard. This is nothing more than another capitalist, imperialist war being declared by and waged for the benefit of the ruling class at the expense of the working classes of Russia and Ukraine. And Russia must immediately withdraw all its forces from Ukraine and enter into all party negotiations to find a diplomatic solution to this crisis. There is no other way here. There is no excuse for what Russia has done, and it is totally immoral. This is no different than what the United States and the United Kingdom did in 2003 when they invaded Iraq. It's no different than what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen right now. There is no excuse for what Russia is doing. It's an imperialist war of aggression, and it needs to come to an immediate halt. With that in mind, I want to also talk about what is going on in Russia itself. Since the start of this invasion, thousands upon thousands of Russian citizens have taken to the streets to protest this unjust war, and as of recording, more than 6,500 anti-war protesters have been arrested or detained by Russian security forces, and I want to express my strong solidarity with these protesters. To those taking to the streets, solidarity, stay strong, and keep fighting. I also want to call on the Russian government to release every single one of these political prisoners, respect their rights, and listen to to them. They are telling you what you need to hear, and you should listen to your people, because they are saying, we do not accept this war. This is an unjust war. We do not want to send our children to go and die so that Putin and his oligarch friends can stay rich, because that's what this war is all about. Now, with all that in mind, we do need to talk about the West's role in all of this, and I just want to say up front, I am totally opposed to NATO. I don't think NATO should exist. It's nothing more than an organ for the U.S. empire, and I am deeply concerned about the reports I'm seeing that Finland and Sweden and others are considering joining NATO in response to these events. And we really need to recognize that, well, this inv- the invasion itself is entirely on Putin's hands, but we need to acknowledge that NATO has played a role in bringing this situation to the point that it is at. We need to recognize that NATO's eastward expansion since the end of the Cold War, and for that matter, Ukraine's expressed desire to join NATO, was a major catalyst for the conflict we are seeing now. I think this was probably best expressed in an article in Jacobin by Branko Marcetic titled, With Putin's Ukraine Incursion, Hawks in Washington got exactly what they wanted. And the article outlines very well, and far better than I could, that the West is not without blame in bringing us to this point. To quote the article, Acknowledging all of this, referring to Putin's illegal invasion and violations of international law, doesn't leave the West blameless in what is happening now. Or, as political scientist Stephen Walt put it, one can believe that Russia's present actions are wholly illegitimate, and also believe that a different set of U.S. policies over the past several decades have made them less likely. Now, the article really well outlines how NATO's refusal to limit its eastward expansion has been a major grievance for both Putin's government and even pro-Western opposition politicians in Russia. But even as Putin escalated his threats over the last few months leading up to this invasion, 
NATO refused to explicitly rule out Ukrainian membership of NATO in the future. Now, we do need to note that Ukrainian membership in NATO was not something that was immediately on the horizon, but it was and still is a future possibility. The article eloquently describes the situation that led us here as, quote, the geopolitical equivalent of a gunman waving a pistol at your friend demanding that you rule out any future plans to climb Mount Everest only for you to cross your arms and refuse. Poetry right there. So we do need to recognize that the U.S. and NATO played a role in bringing us to this situation that we are at now. However, this in no way absolves Putin of what he has done. NATO definitely escalated the situation, but NATO did not force Putin to invade. NATO did not tie Putin's hands behind his back. NATO made things worse, but this does not justify what Putin has done. The invasion of Ukraine is unambiguously and violation of international law, it's an illegal war of aggression, it's an imperialist war of aggression, and Putin needs to immediately withdraw his forces from Ukraine. And by the same metric, this does not justify a military response by the United States or by NATO for, among other reasons, this would make the situation exponentially worse. And I'm unambiguously opposed to this buildup of U.S. military forces in Eastern Europe, which is only adding more fuel to a raging inferno. The answer here is for de-escalation. There needs to be a push for a diplomatic solution to this conflict and an immediate end to hostilities. And at the same time, we must be welcoming every Ukrainian refugee that is fleeing from this war. There is one last editorial point I do want to make on this war, which has come up mainly in regards to the coverage of it, and that's the coverage of the left's response to the war, particularly of the DSA's response to it. There's a uh, somewhat hilarious article in The New Yorker, I'm not going to read it, but I can probably summarize it best as, the American left has been right about every war since Vietnam, but why are they wrong on this one? <laughs> For context, the reason that DSA and the American left is wrong is because it is opposed to NATO, not just the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I just cannot... The coverage like that is just so hilarious to me. Because, let's be totally honest... The position taken by, I think, the majority of the left, not only in the United States, but around the world, is much more consistent than the positions being taken by any of the punditry or those in the national security state or any of those types of folks who are very much anti-Russia, hawks on Russia or whatever, because the position the left is taking that I am taking in this is that imperialism is bad no matter who is doing it. Russian imperialism is bad. U.S. imperialism is bad. And the position that I am taking here is the same position the left took on the war in Iraq, or towards what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen, or towards the Israeli occupation of Palestine. This is the same position. It follows clearly from one to the other. Opposition to the Russian invasion of Ukraine flows from the opposition to Israeli apartheid, U.S. imperialism in the Middle East and Latin America and around the world, Saudi aggression in Yemen. They all have the exact same position, to my mind at least. But these, these punditry are saying that the left is somehow supporting Putin, and I know I'm going to get accused of supporting Putin, because I am anti-NATO, and I am saying that the U.S. should not escalate this. The U.S. has played a role in bringing us to this situation, NATO has played a role in bringing us to this situation, and we need to recognize that in order to prevent further conflicts. But that's, that's the propaganda machine for you, that's the manufacturing of consent. They're hypocrites, they're imperialists. What are you going to do? 
Now, there's a lot more that can be said on Ukraine, and I personally think a lot of it's just been better said elsewhere. I already quoted an article from Jacobin earlier, and there's been a lot of better takes on this than I can really give. I've just given my own editorial comments on it here and a broad overview. I'll openly admit I left out a lot of stuff. I didn't talk about the Euromaidan in 2014, which sparked off this conflict, the annexation of Crimea, the pro-Russian separatists and the breakaway republics in eastern Ukraine. I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. But there is one area that I think I can add a little bit more to the conversation of, and this has been a constant point of discussion since the Maidan revolution in 2014 and the start of this conflict, and that's the role of neo-Nazis in the far right. And this is a topic that I really think isn't being well addressed by anyone since it's been so propagandized and twisted to the point where the actual danger that exists here has become totally obfuscated. To put it simply, since this started, the far-right neo-Nazis have played a role in it. And a lot of the conversation around this revolves around a Ukrainian National Guard battalion, the Azov Battalion. A lot has been said about these guys since 2014. For a brief overview of who they are, they're a far-right regiment within the Ukrainian National Guard, which is part of the Ukrainian Ministry of the Interior. And they were set up by a neo-Nazi group called Patriots of Ukraine in 2014 to go and fight the Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass. And they were soon after incorporated into the National Guard. And let's not beat around the bush on this one. The Azov Battalion are Nazis. Straight up. As I've said, they were set up by a neo-Nazi group called Patriots of Ukraine, who actually gave them their logo, which is a wolf's angle, a symbol popular with neo-Nazis, and was also used by the SS during World War II. And their old logo actually also encompassed another neo-Nazi symbol, the Black Sun, which is often associated with esoteric Nazism. They promote an ultra-nationalist ideology, a blood-and-soil doctrine, their founder, Andrei Beletsky, who is the leader of the aforementioned Patriots of Ukraine, is a far-right politician, and its members and subunits are known for using even more explicit neo-Nazi imagery, and many members espouse racist and anti-Semitic views. They've also been implicated by a number of human rights observers in engaging in war crimes and torture. They've been the subject of a number of documentaries since the start of the conflict back in 2014. Vice, in particular, has done a few pretty good documentaries about them, but they've also become a favorite target for Russian media and propaganda outlets who like to use Azov to portray the Ukrainian military as being made up of neo-Nazis bent on genocide and to suggest that the Ukrainian government as a whole is controlled by neo-Nazis in the far right. This was even echoed in Putin's own justifications for the war, as being to, quote, denazify Ukraine. However, this narrative that Russian media and Russian propaganda has been promoting just is not in line with reality. Azov does not control the Ukrainian government. Far-right forces do not control the Ukrainian government or the Ukrainian military. But I think this narrative actually poses a real danger because it obfuscates the threat that Azov and groups like it pose. And let's be clear, they are a very real and very dangerous threat. While Azov has only about 2,500 active members from what I've seen, although some estimates say it may only be about 1,000, since they were established, they have organized beyond their military capacity. They've set up a civilian arm, the Azov Civil Corps, which runs a number of social centers and boxing gyms, which are essentially far-right fight clubs across Ukraine. They've established a political party led by Azov's founder, Andrei Beletsky, which has about 10,000 members, and set up a vigilante paramilitary arm called the National Militia, which has a couple thousand members, maybe as high as 4,000 members, and has some support among elements of the Ukrainian police and even some Ukrainian municipal administrations, and they even organize an annual neo-Nazi music festival. There are at least two other small, extreme right-wing Ukrainian units operating in the country. The first is the Ukrainian Volunteer Corps, which was set up in 2014 by a neo-fascist political party called the Right Sector. 
And then there's the Ukrainian Volunteer Army, which was set up by some members of the right sector who broke away to set up their own party and their own militia. However, unlike Azov, these groups are not part of the National Guard or the regular armed forces. They operate totally independently and free of the government oversight. But even though Azov is technically integrated into the Ukrainian security forces and the military command structure, they are known to act as a sort of law unto themselves. After all, they aren't like a regular military unit whose loyalty is to the state. They are a fascist army with ideological goals, and that goal is ultimately to take control of the Ukrainian government. Now, so far, it appears that the Ukrainian people are not super enamored with the politics that groups like Azov or the right sector or another far-right party that's actually a bit larger called Svoboda are offering. At the last election in 2019, all these parties ran together on a joint list for the national constituency, and they won zero seats and less than 3% of the vote. And while Svoboda was able to hold on to one of its individual constituency mandates, they lost all their other seats. Andrei Beletsky, the founder of Azov, had actually been a member of parliament before 2019. He lost his seat, as did the right sector, lost all their seats too. But while the Ukrainian people have largely rejected the far right, the neo-fascists at the ballot box, I personally suspect that these fascists are angling to gain power by extra parliamentary means. Specifically, I think they're going to stage a coup at some point. All these groups are heavily armed, especially Azov, uh, who are armed and trained and equipped by the Ministry of the Interior. So Azov in particular, they don't just have small arms like rifles. They have heavy weapons, armored vehicles, artillery, anti-aircraft weapons, tanks, all of that stuff. And since they're organized both politically and militarily, I think they are gearing up for a coup at some point in the future. And I am deeply concerned that this Russian invasion is going to weaken the government and at the same time strengthen these fascist militias and parties and enable them to take power. And I must note, these are just my concerns. I've not heard from a whole lot of other analysts that they think the far right is going to try and stage a coup, although a number of articles have been written saying that the invasion is going to strengthen the Ukrainian far right. And given how strong these groups are militarily, as well as having political organization, I think this is a very real threat and a very real concern that we need to be aware of. But there is also another threat posed by these groups, and that's how they've been building ties with other neo-fascist, neo-Nazi, and far-right groups around the world. Azov has built ties with a number of groups around the world, including the Atomwaffen Division here in the United States and the Rise Above Movement, the Nordic Resistance Movement in Scandinavia, the Third Path in Germany, Generation Identity and the Bloc Identitaire, and the now-prescribed National Action in the United Kingdom. They've also recruited a number of volunteers to come and fight with them from the United States, Norway, Italy, Germany, Croatia, Brazil, the UK, Sweden, Australia, and beyond. And a number of neo-Nazis from around the world have come to Ukraine to train with Azov, including members from Atomwaffen and the Rise Above movement, and it's even suspected that the Christchurch mosque shooter in New Zealand was in contact with Azov. So in essence, Azov is creating a hub in Ukraine for violent neo-Nazis and right-wing extremists and built a network for the global neo-Nazi movement. And this is what I think it, the biggest threat they pose is. And I deeply suspect, in fact, I am almost certain of it, that in the aftermath of this conflict, these neo-Nazis, these fascists that have gone to Ukraine, gotten military training, maybe even military experience will come back to the United States, to Australia, to Western Europe, and we will see a wave of neo-Nazi terrorist attacks. And beyond that, Ukraine is already becoming a center for the far right to network, share resources, and coordinate their efforts. And I don't think that that is going to stop when this conflict ends. If anything, the Russian invasion has only made this situation worse. 
and as an anti-fascist, that absolutely terrifies me. But while I've spoken at length about the neo-Nazis fighting on the Ukrainian side, I also need to mention that there are neo-Nazi and far-right groups fighting on the Russian side too! So just like with Azov, the far-right has been very involved in this conflict since 2014 on the Russian side. Pretty much from the outset, many Russian neo-Nazis came across the border to volunteer with the Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine in Donetsk and Luhansk, as well as other far-right groups from around Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, including some clerical fascists from Bulgaria, Chetniks from Serbia, and even some neo-Nazis from Hungary as well. However, most of these groups and fighters have come from Russia, including the openly neo-Nazi Russian National Unity, the clerical fascist terror group, the Russian Imperial Movement, the Orthodox Ultranationalist, Russian Orthodox Army, which has become particularly infamous for massacres they've carried out against Pentecostals and Catholics, and then you also have a Russian mercenary group called the Wagner Group, which is not a political group per se like all the others I mentioned, but the founder is a known Russian neo-Nazi, and they've routinely been seen with neo-Nazi patches and flags, and their membership is largely drawn from the neo-Nazi subculture in Russia, and even the name of the group itself, the Wagner Group, is for German composer Richard Wagner, known for composing The Ride of the Valkyries, and his virulent anti-Semitism to the point that he was Hitler's favorite composer. Now, unlike Azov, these groups don't operate under the auspices of the Russian military or defense forces, but as part of the separatist forces in Donetsk and Luhansk, making them more irregular detachments as opposed to more formal military brigades. They operate under the command of these breakaway republics rather than under the Russian government, although the pro-Russian separatists are heavily backed by the Russian government. The exception to this is the Wagner Group, which has close ties to the Russian Ministry of Defense and has been contracted by the Russian government on several occasions previously to fight in conflicts such as the Syrian Civil War. But even though these groups are not technically under the control of the Russian government, leaked documents and reports have indicated that the Kremlin is very much encouraging Russian neo-Nazis and right-wing extremists to go and fight in eastern Ukraine with the separatists, in addition, since the war began in 2014, a number of training camps, particularly run by the Russian Imperial Movement, have popped up both in eastern Ukraine and on the Russian side of the border, and it's suspected that the group and the Russian government have a relationship that has been described as an adversarial symbiosis, which means that the Russian government at least tolerates these camps and activities, provided the Russian Imperial Movement refrains from any terrorist activities within the Russian Federation. And just like with Azov, the Russian Imperial Movement has been building ties with far-right, neo-fascist, and neo-Nazi groups across Europe and North America, including Serbian Action, the far-right National Democracy Party in Spain, the National Democratic Party in Germany, the Alliance for Peace and Freedom, a pan-European far-right neo-fascist political association whose members of note include Jean-Marie Le Pen, the father of Marine Le Pen, the Italian neo-fascist Roberto Fiore, and former British National Party leader Nick Griffin. I imagine that many of my British listeners have not heard that name in a long time. But in addition to these groups, the Russian Imperial Movement has built ties with some of the same groups as Azov. This includes Adam Waffen, the Nordic Resistance Movement, and the Third Path. And unsurprisingly, they provided military and terrorist training to a number of neo-Nazis from around the world, including members of Adam Waffen, from both Russia and the United States, and neo-Nazi terrorists from Germany and Spain, and there's actually an ongoing criminal case in Germany related to this right now. So in essence, both the pro-Russian separatists and the Ukrainian forces have been turning that region into a hub for the militant far right and created a space for fascists from around the world to organize virtually unchecked, to build networks, and to obtain tools to commit acts of violence against racial and ethnic minorities, Jewish people, and their political opponents. 
but with the exception of some excellent work and reporting by Vice, a couple mentions in outlets like Newsweek, and even the U.S.'s own propaganda outlet, Radio Free Europe, surprisingly enough, the coverage of this has been lackluster at best, dangerous at worst. And instead, this issue has been allowed to be propagandized to the point of absurdity by the Russian narrative, or dismissed and downplayed by the Western narrative, and just rebutted by pointing to the existence of Russian neo-Nazis too. And anyone who brings up the Azov Battalion is often branded as pro-Russian. But this is a very serious issue, and we need to be discussing it. The fact that there are neo-Nazis and fascists of different stripes fighting on both sides of this war should be taken as a threat in and of itself, regardless of whichever side the Nazis in question are fighting on. Whenever Nazis, whenever fascists are given a space to organize, to grow, to spread their poison anywhere in the world, everyone is at risk. It does not matter whose side they're fighting on. Any Nazi, anywhere, is a threat to peace, freedom, and equality everywhere. Fascism is insidious. It's like a virus. It's like a plague. And right now, there is a major outbreak in Ukraine, and the Russian invasion may very well turn into a super-spreader event that we will be feeling the impacts of for years to come. The only way to contain this right now is to end the war, for Russia to withdraw its troops, and for the conflict to be resolved diplomatically and peacefully before any more lives are lost, before the fascists can use the conflict to get any more strength, and even then, it may be too little, too late, to stop this, so all of us anti-fascists must remain ever vigilant, as always. I think that's all I really have to say about the situation in Ukraine, and I want to just end this by saying my heart goes out to the people of Ukraine who are fearing for their lives and fleeing from their homes, and I want to encourage everyone to find some ways to help the Ukrainian refugees fleeing this conflict by donating, volunteering, or whatever is within your means. I also want to say to the people of Russia, my heart goes out to you as well, and I hope that your children return home soon and safely, and that Putin puts an end to this unjust, illegal, imperialist venture. And to those in Russia who have taken to the streets, solidarity, stay strong, keep in the fight, and don't let these criminals that run your country get away with this war. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Sunflower Socialist Podcast. It is great to be back and recording. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends, family, comrades. And if you'd like to help me make this more regularly, you can donate to my Patreon. It really helps out. And if you have any topics you'd like me to cover, please get in touch with me on any of my social media platforms, as I always appreciate your suggestions. I am hoping to do an episode next month on the upcoming French elections as a sort of way to round up the video series that I had been doing but had to give up on due to some insanity in my life. So do stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, solidarity. Solidarity.